Last week, we started this subject. I thought we'd be done, but we're not, of course. And now that I've looked at it again, I don't know if this is going to be the last one either, but I hope it will be, uh, on being transformed and not conformed to the world. It's a big subject. It's an important passage. We've talked about this passage many times. I should apologize, but I'm not going to, because it's, I think, a significant passage for the times that we live in here in Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 2. It's significant because it covers not only the spiritual aspects of what it means to be a Christian and what's a little bit involved in that, but also the practical aspect then of how to live as a Christian, which is so missing, strangely enough, from what I hear on the TV and radio from people that call themselves Christians. The idea, they have the idea that somehow once you become a Christian, all these things just happen for you and you just become transformed and it's all automatic Holy Spirit does it for you. It's all automatic and so forth. But it isn't at all that way. That's not what this text says. So let's read the text, and then we'll try not to run over too much of what we did last week, and so we can move on to something a little bit new this week. Here in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, I beseech or beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, pause there for a moment. He's not talking here. This is not involving just something that's in your head. Christianity does not involve something that's just in your head. It goes way beyond that. He says you have to take your body, that everything that you have that you do stuff with, and you present this body to the Lord and say, this is your body as a sacrifice. Do with this what you will. Well, how does that happen? Is it some magical process that takes place that God just begins to move us around like a puppeteer? Is it all pre-programmed? You know, the idea that's taught in many churches, Reformed churches, that everything's been predestined by God to be a certain way, and that's all the way it can be. How does that work here? I thought if it was already predestined, what's the point of even telling me I have to present my body to God? This is something that I have to do. I have to present my body to God each day that I live and everything that I do as a, as a living sacrifice. Not a dead one, but a living sacrifice. This is, he says, your reasonable service, or some versions say your spiritual service. It's the word logike. It means the mind. The reason, the, the word reasonable here carries with it in, in our modern English the idea of thinking something out, reasonable as opposed to unreasonable, irrational. That, that's not the meaning of the word here. The meaning is this is the service that God accomplishes from your mind or wants from your mind. And so the link here is clear. The mind has to be converted to Christ and transformed, and then it causes the body to act in certain ways. We begin to act a different way and do different things. That's what the rest of this chapter is going to be about when we get past the first verses. He says that this is our reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So to be conformed, we saw last week, is to fit the schematic, the plan of the world, the way the world wants you to think, and we spend a lot of time talking about the world and I was critical about the world that we live in, the culture we live in. I don't want to go back over all of that, but I'm planning on trying to address that either next week or the week after as to what is our relationship to the world that we live in, to the culture that we live in. How should we think about it? How should we act about that? And we'll talk more about that uh, in another lesson. Maybe I was a little bit strong or harsh about that last week, 
But I want to make sure we're clear on what the Bible says about that. Now then, he said, we need to not be conformed to what the culture of our time says, the age that we live in is. But we need to be transformed. How are we going to be transformed? By the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, we're just automatically transformed since we became a Christian. And we start doing things because God, can, God makes our bodies and minds change and move. No, it's by the renewing of our mind. And he's going to show you here a little bit of how that takes place, what the renewing of the mind is. To make your mind new again and to think differently than you used to think. Now the word mind here, to be fair, it also has a slightly different meaning in the Bible use of the word in the Greek language than it does in our modern English. When we think of mind, we're thinking just of logical thought or the brain, as it were. Of course, that's a good philosophical question. Do you have a mind or a brain? That's another whole subject altogether. Because to the Darwinists, secular people today, all you have is a brain. All you are is just a collection of gray matter and cells and neurons and electrical impulses, and that's all that there is up here. It's just a brain. We Christians know that there's a brain there, sure, but the, the inside that brain is a mind. That's you as an individual that has an independent thought apart from the brain itself, exists independent of that brain. The, it, con, the, it controls the brain and then it actions, but we're, the mind is the ghost and the machine. Now, in the Greek here, it is talking about that idea. It's the mind or the heart, the whole person. The, it's, it, it's the feelings of that person, the intuitions, the thoughts. All those things make up a human mind or a human person. That's the idea here. So this has all got to be changed from a worldly person who's thinking just like the age tells him to think, has to follow along and find out what TikTok says he should think about stuff today, how he should react to the latest news. He has to find out what other people think and follow along with the course of the world, or he has a renewed mind. So do not be conformed to this world. So we saw, and we, I don't want to go back over this altogether, but we saw that conformed means to be fashioned like it. It's a blueprint. And so uh, Philip says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And then we saw that the idea of the age, the God of this world, the word world, do not be conformed to this world. That world is this, is this uh, aeon. We get eons from that word in English, uh, the age, a period of time. Basically, it's a time period with moral or spiritual characteristics, a culture. So the age has changed somewhat since I was a child or a boy because the culture has dramatically changed during my lifetime in the United States as to what we would call the world. Now, I won't say that the world I grew up in was a, was a godly world and it was doing everything right. That certainly wasn't true. But the one we have now is different in that it is an openly secular a, God, a world that that brags about being godless isn't just godless but is actually taking pride and makes a point to reject god in its thinking that's where we are today that's a different kind of culture do not be conformed to that culture now i i don't have i don't need to be conformed to the culture of 1950 nor should i be conformed to the culture of 2021 i have to be conformed to God's mind and what he says. And so we talked about all of that, and I want to 
summarize some of that. We didn't really cover this much last week. But I want you to think about how the Bible presents how we Christians should view ourselves with respect to our neighbors and the society that we live in, those who are serious Christians. We've talked about these verses before, but let's read them again in this context. This is Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 2. He says that we, I should say that he, he talks about a person living in the world, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This is what's required of you when you say, I want to be a Christian. What's required of you, among other things, is that you have to decide, I am not going to live the rest of my time on the earth according to the lusts of men, the desires of human beings. But I'm going to live according to the will of God or for the will of God. That's what's required of you. No more. It isn't about, well, my mom was a Christian, so I guess I am. I'm born in a Christian country, so I guess I am. I, I, I think I love God, so that makes me a Christian. And yet I do all these other things. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's making that conscious decision when you become a Christian. That I am no longer going to live the way I've been living and the way those around me live. I'm going to live according to the will of God. That's a big thing. And that requires a lot of thought on its own, but we're not going to spend more time there. But he says, here's the reason. We have spent enough of our past lifetime. Now, this is really true for some of you. That you've already spent enough of your... And I'll say this to those who are listening and even some in this audience. I noticed that people of my generation are now gray-headed. We used to be the young hippies, young hippie radicals back in the 60s and 70s. And we lived our own life. My whole generation and the ones that came out, we taught our children... Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Live your own life. You, you be you, and you do what you want to do. Don't be tied down by what's in a book and what's in religion. Don't, especially don't let those religious people, uh, you know, tie you down, rain on your parade. What's the word they used to use? Well, it's such a bummer, I guess, is one of them. But, you know, nope. Don't let, that's, how it, that's how my generation was, a lot of it. And I, I see some of these people. What I'm telling you is what Peter would say to you, you boomers and you older millennials, you've spent enough of your past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. That's people who are opposed to God. You spent enough of your life doing that. It's time to do something different. When we walked in lewdness, in lusts, in drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Boy, each of those deserves, I wish Stacy were here, because they deserve a whole sermon, Stacy, if you're listening. All, she, she makes fun of me for defining words and spending a couple weeks on one word. Okay, these all deserve a couple weeks of our thinking. What does this look like in real life today? Well, we've seen a couple of generations... Raised on that very mindset, that lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries are the way that we're supposed to live. And we still think it is. Anybody that reigns on that parade is just an old Puritan fogey trying to, trying to uh, you know, take you down and so forth. They're a legalist. That's what the religious word they use is. You're a legalist if you oppose those things. 
Peter says, you've spent enough of your life doing that. It's time to do something different. And that's to have your mind changed. He goes on to say, in regard to these, they, that is the world, the Gentiles, the world, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They, they, can say that, they can say that they hate Christians because they're a bunch of hypocrites, and there's plenty of them, and you've heard me criticize them many times from this pulpit. And that may be true to a degree. I don't really think, based on what the Bible says, I don't really think that the culture, the world hates us because we're all a bunch of hypocrites. I think they hate us because of this. I think they hate us because we will not run with them to the same flood of excess and dissipation. We won't do the same things that they think are good to do. And when we won't do it, they get upset. Have you ever been in a group of people, it's happened to me before, and they all want to order a drink, and you say, no thanks. All of a sudden, if you say, no thanks, what do they do? They turn on you. You've got to, get, you've got to do it. We're doing it. You've got to do it. And if you don't do it, we're going to throw you out of the group. You thought they were your friends. And they were your friends and are your friends as long as you'll run to the same excess of right. But when you say, no, I don't do that, they'll turn against you. Now, this is, I don't have any proof of all of this except to say the Bible seems to say the world hates you the same way that Cain, for the same reason that Cain hated Abel. Because his deeds were, un, were righteous and Cain's deeds were unrighteous and he hated him because of it. That's what the Bible says. Now, is there an element that they don't like us because we're phonies? Yes. Plenty of people are phonies. They come to a place like this on Sunday, get all dressed up, smell better than you the rest of the week. You know, they take a shower and everything, come here, sit and look all prim and proper, call people brothers and sisters and say amen and all that stuff, hallelujah. And then they go right out Sunday night or Monday morning and they act just like everybody around them, cursing their neighbors, drinking and, and carousing, and they talk and act the same way. There's plenty of that. And God will, God will bring you into judgment for it. When you shame his name like that among the Gentiles, he'll bring you into judgment for that. It doesn't mean that you're better than your neighbors because you come to church either. Don't get, that's what, that may be another factor. But the real reason is because you're different than they are and you're not going to live that same life. And so he says they're going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. J.C. Ryle says, Are you willing to give up anything which keeps you back from God? Is there any cross in your Christianity? Are there any sharp corners in your religion? Anything that even jars and comes in collision with the earthly mindedness around you? I can tell you that if you're a member of a lot of these mega churches around this country, you, nothing like that's ever going to happen to you because there aren't any sharp corners. You get to go to a rock concert for church for crying out loud. How bad can it be to be a Christian? Are there any sharp corners in your Christianity? Anything that ever jars comes in collision with the earthly mindedness around you? Or is all smooth and rounded off, comfortably fitted into custom and fashion? Do you know anything of the afflictions of the gospel? Is your faith and practice ever a subject of scorn and reproach? Are you thought a fool by anyone because of your soul? Good questions, aren't they? And he wrote that 100 years ago. So, I wonder what he'd think today. Have you ever heard of this man, Demas? 
Here's a man for you. Demas, it says, there's three patches about Demas. Here's the first one. Paul says in Colossians, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Here's someone who is with Paul. Paul sending a letter, and Luke is with him, and Demas is with him. He's one of Paul's close associates. Here he is in the New Testament greeting the other Christians because he's Paul's companion. Then you see this in Philemon 2, 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus, uh, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. These are all with Paul, and we send our greetings to you in the name of the gospel. And then you have this passage later, later in time. 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter. This is the last chapter Paul wrote, in fact. For Demas, he says, has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. We don't know why, what specific circumstances. This is a sad story right here. And that's, this is the whole story. This is really all we know about it. But this man that was once close to Paul has now decided that I love this present world more then I would like to suffer affliction with the Apostle Paul. Because things were getting close for Paul. Things were getting tight in 2 Timothy. He says, my departure is at hand. I'm going to be put to death. And so Demas loved his life. He loved what he had. Loved what he could have without Paul. And he left. That's why Paul was able to say that when I first made my, when I made my first offense against, with Caesar, no one stood by me. But the Lord stood by me. Rather than be conformed to the world, this book in Romans says, do not be conformed to this world, but going back to Romans 12 too, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here's conformed, that's the same shape, the same form as the world. But Christians are called to be transformed into something different than they were. And so we have this picture of the, I don't know if it shows up up here, of the monarch butterfly. Now, I, I grew up in Ohio, and we used to have these things all over. I've caught many of these little caterpillars chewing away on different plants that I liked and put them in a, a jar or cage and watch them turn into a caterpillar, I mean a chrysalis, and finally turn into a butterfly. Then I would stick a pin through them and put them on a board. You know, I did all that lovely stuff. I did not know, when I, I was a kid, I did all these, I just saw these boards go to a fair and you see all these insects on it. I was like, oh my God, I was mesmerized. So I home got me some cardboard and some my mother's pins. I started catching bugs and just sticking them on the cardboard. Of course, they're, you know, I didn't know you're supposed to kill them first. I just stuck them on the board. They were kind of interesting. But anyway, you stick these things on there. And the word that's used here is metamorpho. And in English, it's metamorphosis, and that the, that's the process that's going on here. Metamorphosis. And it's a, a ch- literally, it's a change or of place or condition to transform, transfigure, or to change one's form. So here is an egg on the bottom leaf down here that becomes a, a pupa and then a caterpillar, and the caterpillar changes, becomes a chrysalis, and then becomes from the chrysalis a butterfly. The process of changing form from an egg to a caterpillar to a butterfly. 
This is the word that's used here for a Christian's transformation from the world. We were, had been ugly caterpillars, destructive. We can become butterflies. You know, I just happened to think of this. My, we used to meet my in-laws at a restaurant, Dixie Crossroads, I think it's called, up on, along the coast between here and Jacksonville. So we would meet them up there, come time to this Dixie Crossroads restaurant. It's a seafood place, so I liked it. But it was busy. And they have a butterfly garden there, a big butterfly garden, all these plants and butterfly, all, and everybody goes there. They put that in because if you, you have to wait so long for your food, they give you something to do while you're waiting. Modern restaurants just turn on the Internet and everybody's happy. But you had to go outside and look at butterflies. So we came back in, getting ready for our table, a group of us, and I stopped at the, at the lady. It looked like she ran the place. I said, oh, I just want to let you know. I said, you know, your garden is just full of caterpillars. I killed as many of them as I could while I was out there. But I was trying to help you out. Of course, she eyes get this big. I started laughing. I said, not, not true. But I said, I just thought you'd like to know. you got a lot of caterpillars out there. <laughs> Uh, she was upset because I had interrupted the metamorphosis. If, if I didn't do that, let it be known on the Internet, I did not kill the butterfly garden. Just joking. Transformation. Sounds good, doesn't it? Because, well, I'll just put it this way. There's plenty of people in the world living, and have, they have a miserable life, and they're not very happy. They're struggling to find it. But they don't want to change form. If, if I could tell them how to be saved without making any changes, they'd be happy. And people will come sometimes for counseling, and, but, and I know what they're seeking, and they want to tell me all these problems and difficulties, and they want me to give them some advice that says, you can keep on doing just what you're doing, and everything's going to turn out well. That's the advice they're seeking from me. They want me to confirm that they can just keep on doing the things they're doing and even get better at it, and it's all going to turn out fine. Okay, I guess occasionally some people are like that, but most people, what has to happen to make any change in their life, they have to change what they're doing. And to change what you're doing, most of the time, fundamentally involves a changing of yourself, changing of your heart into something different than it was. Now, this renewing of your mind, being transformed, Paul says this in a way, it's referenced several times in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, there's a larger figure of illustration at work in 2 Corinthians 3, which I don't want to take the time to explain carefully, but you can read the whole passage. He also refers to Moses veiling his face from the people back then. But he, what he's getting at, essentially, here is the face of Christ. And it's not hidden from those who want to know about it. It's not some mystery. Christ has revealed his face to us. But people look at the, what's revealed in the scriptures and they often turn away because they don't like what they see about Christ. And they say something different than what they really see there. But he says, if, if you just keep looking into, this fa- into the face of Christ, intently looking and learning, you're, you will be changed into the same thing that he is. You will be transformed into the same image from glory to glory. His glory will be transferred to you the more you stare into his face. 
Now, we know from the scriptures in James that the word of God is a mirror that shows us what we are. Here he's using the idea of looking into the face of Christ. I think he means by that to understand and to know what Christ is and how he is. And so he uses this idea of us being transformed. Now, this doesn't mean, as Mormons believe, that somehow we become gods when we become Christians. As we grow, we slowly become a god. Or the Hindus believe a similar thing, that we slowly live, and through karma and reincarnation, we become uh, uh, gods and are transformed into something completely different than we are. That's not what this means. This just means what's really in us, our true being, our mind, is slowly turned into the mind of Christ. I can see this in my life, and I can talk about it if, you, if you'll bear with me just for a moment, uh, briefly, if you'll bear with me in this sense, and don't think ill of me for saying this. But I, 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 Paul said the same thing several times in the Bible, you know, just bear with me a little foolishness. I don't even know how to express this exactly. But the things that I do, it's dated every, every now and then I will do something uh, that's nice, that's good for someone else or towards someone else or in life. I will do something that, objectively speaking, is a good thing. I, nothing comes to mind right now. <laughs> Maybe Judy could think of something. I, I don't think she could even think of anything. Nothing comes to mind right now, but trust me, this has happened. That I've done something unselfish and good. When that happens, what I know and what I thought about later when I look at that, that was not me that did that. Because in myself is, as the Bible says, no good thing like that. I wouldn't have ever done it on my own being Mike, as Mike was when he was a young man, never, ever would have done something like that. My actions and my attitudes would have been so different. But it seemed like me. I'm the one who did it. But what was really happening there is that over all these years, God finally beat on me enough that in one little corner of my life, this good thing came out in real life that happened. And that was unselfish and generous, whatever kind, whatever it might be. That was not me. That was a transformed person acting according to the mind of Christ. That's why Paul says, it's not me that liveth, but Christ that lives in me. Lives in me. That's what he means by that. It isn't some magical, mystical thing. But it's the fact that over time, the word of God and the influence of other good people slowly changes and breaks down that hardened self-will and allows, what my, allows my choice to be almost seamless it seems like it's me that doing that. And from the outside, it might look like that, but I know it's not me. I know it's God doing that. I know it's, it's the word of God transforming me into the same image from glory to glory. Does that make any sense? When you begin to think that the good that you do comes from you, you've got a serious spiritual problem. That's what the Pharisees thought. That's what lots of wicked people think. That they're innately good on their own. They don't need God. Whatever good thing they do is somehow them. And yet Christians know that even though, yes, we do those things, that the good impulse that's within us comes because God has influenced us. Not in some overtly magical way that against our will, but because we have looked into his face and desired to see what it looks like, it slowly we can be transformed into something different. We better move on. 
Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that in a large context, we don't have time to consider, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. So the old man in you, this self-will, the idea that you're going to do what you want to do, and nobody can tell you what to do, and you want to have your way and fulfill your fears, they drive you, drive you and push you and pull you, all those things. This man is getting corrupt. Worse, he's getting worse by the day. And his lusts are deceitful. He thinks he wants things, but they, he's being deceived by the things he wants. That you put that away. You, Paul, Peter said, you spend enough of your lifetime chasing these things, living this way. You spend enough of your lifetime, now follow God. And be renewed. Here's that word transformed. It's a renewing. He says we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. He puts it here. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So I think the picture may be something like this. I I don't know theologically. I'm no theologian. It seems to me in reading the New Testament over and over again that what the Bible pictures when a person decides I'm going to give up the way I've been living. I'm going to submit my life to God and become a Christian. And they go down in that water, confess Christ as being Lord over their life. Lord and Christ. Both the Lord means he's their master, and Christ means he's their savior. And they go down in the waters of baptism. Their sins are washed away. They come up. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means that now there's an opening, an open in their heart for the Spirit to come in through the Word and help them. They've made a start. Something new has been created. The Bible says you're a babe in Christ. You become new. But babies don't really know anything at that point in time. They have to grow. They have to be fed. And so you begin to be fed, Peter says, on the Spirit, on the Word of God. You desire the sincere milk of the Word that you might grow thereby as a newborn babe, Peter says. And so you begin to grow in that. And over time then, this Spirit is renewed. This little Spirit that began on that day, this little desire to follow the Lord, to be like Him, to be to be his servant, begins to grow in you. And your, and your mind and character slowly begin to change. Now a lot of people, they get to that point of either belief, or even if you can get them to the point of baptism, and they stop right there. They think that that's, that's this song we sing, believe, obey, the work is done. That's the original words, uh, trust and obey, I think it is, for there's no other way. Is it believe, obey, the work is, is that the right song? Believe, obey, the work is done. And in newer versions, it's changed to believe, obey, the work is done, is begun, which is probably more accurate. The work of being saved is done, I suppose, but by God. But the, your work is begun when you first become a Christian. And this process of being transformed, Paul is saying here, you, it's obvious from this passage that this is a process. This isn't a one-time event, as sometimes the Calvinists put it of being saved is one time. This process is coming over a long period of time. Now, they might say this is what they would call sanctification. But again, it's not done against your will. You're do, you put on. Isn't that what verse 24 says? You put on the new man, which was created according to God. So whatever's been created in you that wants to serve God, that wants to do better, that wants to be in God's image, God made that in you. You didn't make it yourself. You couldn't have. 
And now he gives you the power to, for that to keep growing if you choose that to happen. So how is your mind renewed? Well, I think it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that comes through the word of God. Because if it just comes to you from the power of the Holy Spirit and you have nothing to do with it, then it's God doing everything. And, and that's not what these verses are saying. And we see this in, in places like uh, second, first Timothy, th- second Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 4. Uh, here's what Paul told Timothy. That from, a child, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. Through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Here's that process of growing and becoming complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, whatever good thing that you need to do or want to do. The word of God will equip you for that if you allow that word of God into your heart. Or, or you see, Paul says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress, here's that progress of growing and being transformed, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. I could probably give you another illustration of this. I know our time is short, but maybe this is, I just thought maybe it's a better illustration than the one I gave before about this process. I, I, one of my closest friends as a young man was a man named Norman Henderson. I don't know if anybody here ever knew Norman. He was a great man. He's not any, he, he was a postman. He was a letter carrier. He was a glorified delivery boy, he said. So he wasn't anything special as far as the world's concerned. But this man knew the scriptures. He lived in Hollywood when I was down there. He was at first a, a deacon in the church and then became an elder eventually. He and I, he's the same age as my father. He and I became very close. I was in my early 30s. We became very close. He kind of tried to straighten me out. He took me under his wing because he knew I had, you know, a, a lot of uh, rough edges and needed to be sort of beat off of me. And he was one of the few people that stood up to me and told me, you know, knock it off when I need to be, when I need to have that done in the right way. I knew him as a gentle, I've seen so many times when there was a situation at the church where things were a little tense or things happening, he would kind of step up and stand up and say exactly the right thing. And he would go to this person, that person, and help them, encourage them, get them to, you know, work with the other person. He resolved so many conflicts. And he was the one who, he would literally chase visitors all the way to the car to go to greet them. So they would not be oh, go away with no one to greet them. He really helped me a lot. Knew the Bible, knew how to apply the Bible. But other people, I noticed other people had a different impression of Norman than me. Some of the older people had a different impression of Norman than I did. And I began to talk to them about this a little bit. This might have been after he was dead, by they said, Norman is a hothead. He's a troublemaker. You've got to be kidding me. I've never seen anything like this at all, ever in him. I have, but I didn't recognize it. Well, when he was a young man, he had a hot temper. He wasn't afraid to take on anybody and, and get in people's face, as it were. And then it began to click. 
Then I began to, to remember some serious, some things that happened between me and him even. And what I was seeing, what I was seeing as he was an older man, is a man who had recognized, who was a good man, who had recognized that he had a hot temper and allowed the Spirit of God to bring it under control. I think he got just as upset when he was older as he did when he was younger in these situations. He, he got up once when I got done preaching. He got up one time and he said, well, he said, that was a good sermon. He said, but I don't want any of you to think that that's all the Bible has to say about that subject because Mike left out this verse and he quoted the verse. He says, I just don't want you to go over here thinking that's all there is to say about that. That took courage, didn't it? Especially argue with me for crying out loud. So we spent a lot of time that week. And I got up, and because of his influence, I got up the next Sunday night and I said, Well, look, last week I preached this, and Norman said I left it out. And so I tell you what, me and him studied this week. We studied for several hours. And so what I'm going to do today, I'm going to re preach this same sermon, and I'm going to put in what Norman said I left out, and I'm going to keep it the same way. Even though he still disagrees, I'm going to keep some of it the same way. And you know what he said about that? He said, Good. He taught me something. And the other time, another time I, I, I came back to that church after I'd left there, came back and held a gospel meeting, and I preached at a controversy. They asked me to preach on a controversial subject, and I got done preaching, and I knew that some of them would not like this at all, what I said. And I got, he got up after I got done. He said, well, I just want you to know that what Mike said about this and this is not the position of the elders of this church. And he said, and you all know that Mike and I are best friends. And think the world of each other. But I want you to know it's not the position of the elders of this church. And here's why. Did I have a problem with that? I had zero problem with that. Because he didn't attack me. He was calm. And, but I could tell. What I'm trying to say is when he was a younger man. He would have handled that completely differently. And it would have blown up. But he had been transformed by the power of God into someone whose nature had been changed so that he was able now to do the right thing in the right way. And that wasn't his power. That was the power of God working in him. And I saw this over and over again as I look back on his life, things that were not his nature, but he did them because it was in what the Scripture said to do. I so admire that. That's not easy to do. Some people just defend their bad temper. They just defend their, their reckless speech instead of making an effort to change it according to the will of God. And the scriptures say, well, I don't even know what that last one said. I just ran over didn't I? Good thing I'm not in a hurry. The mind, a renewed mind is saturated and controlled by the word of God. We'll probably just try to stop on this when our time is far gone. Let the word of Christ, he says, dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want as long as you say in God's name. He means that what you should do, what you should do should be according to the will of God before you do it. This is the renewed mind. It takes. Now, next week we'll delve in this a little bit further and talk about our relationship to the world. But we need to stop this morning and and uh, 
continue in the rest of our worship service. I do appreciate your attention to these things so much. And as I mentioned a moment ago, that to, what I alluded to the fact that to become a Christian, you must believe that Jesus is God's son and decide that he is going to be both Lord and ruler of your life. And based on that belief, submit to him in baptism and be born again, raised up to be a new creature. And then begin this process of transformation. If we can help you with that, everything is ready. We have the clothes, the water, everything is ready for you to be baptized. If you're ready for that, if you are, make up your mind. Or perhaps this morning, as a Christian, you just need to <laughs> repent and turn back to the, what you know is right to do. Get your life and thoughts back on track. And if we can help you with that, you come to the front. We'll pray with you. God can forgive and get you get the help that you need. We can be your brothers and sisters in that endeavor. If we can help you right now, come right here to the front. Let's stand and sing.